This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Every age has had a different way of describing a woman who exists alone, rather than as part of a couple. Today, she might just call herself single. But at different times in the past, people might have referred to her, often with contempt, as an old maid, a bachelor girl, a spinster, or a singleton. For most of history, this has been considered to be a pitiful state, against the natural order of things, as if a woman without a man because until the very recent past, it would have been thought that it was a man she needed, of course, was somehow incomplete and lesser. After the First World War, there was a great flowering of female independence as more women chose to live single lives. This change, and the backlash to it, is all there to be found in the murder mysteries of the period, if you just dig a little below the surface. From self-contained professional women like Mary Whittaker in Dorothy L. Sayers' Unnatural Death, to dear fluffy Miss Marple, there are a multitude of single women's lives to discover. But let's go back to the beginning. This particular story starts with the surplus women. Welcome to She Done It. I'm Caroline Crampton. In 1921, the British government published the results of a census. It recorded that there were just over 44 million people in total in the country, an increase of around 2 million from a decade before, despite the loss of life during the First World War. The figure that attracted the most attention at the time, though, was a striking disparity between the numbers of men and women. For every 1,000 men, there were 1,100 women, or an excess that amounts to 1,906,284 as one newspaper put it at the time. At this point, the First World War had been over for three years. 700,000 British men had been killed. The casualties were disproportionately young, unmarried, and from the middle or upper classes. Another 250,000 people in the UK died in the global Spanish flu epidemic of 1918 and 1919. In the decades before the 1920s, there had also been campaigns luring young unmarried men to emigrate to British colonies like Australia and India, with the promises of far greater wealth and luxury than can be obtained by staying at home. Given all this, it shouldn't have been very surprising, then, that in 1921 the country contained more women than men. Many women found themselves single either because fiancés and sweethearts had died in the trenches, or just because all the casualties meant that there was no one left in their circle to pair up with. Some characterised these women as imaginary widows, unmarried yet mourning the husbands they should have had. A socialite named Izzy Russell Stevenson, whose husband died in 1918 from his war injuries, recalled many years later how she went to a party in 1919 and thought it was a women-only affair until she spotted a single suit among all the evening frocks. It was as if every man you had ever danced with was dead, she said. 
Helen Parkinson's great-aunt, Mary Shalcross, was another woman who lost the man she might have married to the war. Certainly not affianced or anything like that, but, you know, somebody she was fond of, and then that's it. And she she led a solitary life, um, other than being anti and things after that, yeah. Mary was a factory worker who worked variously in munitions and confectionery plants throughout her life. She never married, or to Helen's knowledge, even came close. She was very shy. I would imagine if the pool of available men was much reduced, there'd be other people, possibly her younger sister, thinking about it who'd be better at nabbing what was left. (laughs) But for all that she'd lost someone important to her, Mary was happy, or at least as far as Helen knows she was. Really happy, yes, she was actually. She took content in small things because my granny certainly ran round my granddad all her life doing exactly what he wanted. So maybe Auntie Mary was quite glad she didn't have to. Mary Shalcross was just one of thousands of women who found their circumstances irrevocably altered by the First World War, but refused to give in to spinsterhood and despair. Yet even before the 1921 census confirmed Britain's gender disparity, the plight of those like her had become the focus of much outrage and indignation. A medical doctor named Murray Leslie had given a widely reported lecture to the London Institute of Hygiene in February 1920, in which he warned that women would soon be scrapping like cats over the scared and elusive male. This in turn would lead to a lowering of moral standards, more infidelity and clandestine sexual relationships, which in his view would result in a national crisis. Reporting on Leslie's talk, a Leeds Mercury newspaper writer linked Britain's post-war economic depression directly to the terrible behaviour caused by the mere existence of these extra females. No wonder the value of the pound has become so depreciated abroad, he mourned. Of course, women wrote into these newspapers, often anonymously, to point out that they were, in fact, also human beings with a right to their own lives. In response, men penned opinion pieces proposing solutions to this supposed problem, such as increased female emigration and special care for that scarce commodity, male infants. Throughout all this fuss, One phrase was repeated more than any other. Surplus women. The phrase surplus women came about in the press in the early 1920s in response to the 1921 census. This is Rosemary Cresswell, a senior lecturer in global history at the University of Hull. It isn't as simple as to say that the First World War unbalanced the population, she says. The trend in there being more women than men in British society goes back to Victorian and the Edwardian period. And some of the factors around that are emigration to empire, but also that infant mortality was higher amongst boys than amongst girls. The reductive idea that everyone in the nation was supposed to pair off boy-girl, boy-girl is fraught with problems. Not least because not everyone is straight. Male homosexuality was a criminal offence at this point in history, although of course gay and lesbian people existed and had relationships in spite of prejudice and the need for secrecy. Part of the reaction against the so-called surplus women is connected to this, as women would often set up house with their female friends, causing alarm among those who hated the idea that they might love each other rather than a man. We're going to talk in much more detail about how the private lives of queer people find their way into detective stories in a future episode, so listen out for that. Rosemary Cresswell first started researching the surplus women as part of her work on the Overseas Nursing Association, an agency that recruited British nurses who wanted to work abroad. Large numbers of women were applying to do this in the early 1920s, a trend that could well be a result of so-called surplus women wanting to seek their fortune abroad, 
as an alternative to remaining in a Britain that regarded them as superfluous? I would think that if they did want to marry and hadn't found somebody in Britain, there would be this awareness that there's more men, uh, more choice um, in empire. But also, I think it is... It's an adventure to go overseas. So there's more to it, I think, than, than just seeking, seeking marriage. I think it's about independence, autonomy, a different lifestyle to that which we would have had in Britain. During the First World War, the number of women in the workforce had increased by nearly a million. Women had stepped into traditional male roles in factories, on farms, in hospitals and in offices, and many had found it to their liking. In 1918, British women received partial suffrage for the first time, when the Representation of the People Act gave the vote to women over the age of 30 who met certain minimum property standards. When the war was over and there was pressure to step aside so that returning soldiers could have their jobs back, many women were reluctant to relinquish the independence and autonomy that their new working lives had provided. Being labelled as surplus was just an additional insult, along with the lack of equal pay and proper pension provision. There was an additional incentive for working women to remain single at this time, in the form of what was called a marriage bar. Here's Rosemary Cresswell again. So if you got married and you're a teacher, for example, then you would have to leave your job. This was a trend that started after the First World War because there were men coming back with demobilisation who needed employment. So there was much more emphasis that women could not work if they got married. So if people wanted a career, if they wanted to be a teacher and become a head teacher, if they wanted to be in nursing and become a matron and progress up, then it could be a choice not to get married. And in the civil service, it was the same as well. It was legal to, to do this at that time, to force women to resign their job if they married. In many cases, these marriage bars were informal just an unspoken understanding that married women wouldn't work, as opposed to an actual rule or law. It worked, though. 90% of women gave up their jobs when they got married. If you were someone who wanted a career, therefore, it was in your interest to remain unattached. It's always been the case that women with any degree of power or autonomy have become objects to be feared or dismissed as unnatural. The scaremongering in the 1920s around the idea of surplus women only exacerbated this existing prejudice. There are plenty of examples from other literature of the time. Vera Britton, for instance, who had lost her fiancé in the war, wrote a poem titled The Superfluous Woman, in which she described them as ghosts crying down the vistas of the years. Her friend Winifred Holtby, another post-war single woman with whom Britton lived, wrote several novels with characters who struggled with the loneliness and futility of their lives. There are loads more works like this too, and together they suggest that Britton was stuffed full of maiden aunts, a tragic lost generation of British womanhood. This literary stereotype of the spinster is one manifestation of the ways in which independent women have been stigmatised down the years. Even as society has become more tolerant and fair, that caricature remains. So I know that we've tried to retrieve spinster as a word to try and sort of flip it on its head, but it still retains that kind of connotation of it's a pernicious kind of a word. It's a word that's hard to reclaim. This is Camilla Nelson, an associate professor of writing at the University of Notre Dame, Australia. She's made a study of all the ways in which single women are portrayed in literature. 
and she's found that some of the most sympathetic and positive versions exist in the detective novels of the 1920s and 30s. What's wonderful about many of those stories, like Miss Marple or Miss Lemon or Miss Clemson, um, is that they're stories about women who are leading full and satisfying lives, who, who are working, who aren't reliant on men, who, who are characters in, in novels who aren't just a sort of a satellite of the male character or a a conduit um, to their husband and who are leading full lives which are are separated or divorced from marriage and, and romance. And there'll be more on that after the break. In History's Secret Heroes, Helena Bonham Carter shines a light on extraordinary stories from World War II. This is a series that tells the tales from the Second World War that are unjustly less well-known than the oft-repeated histories of that time. Personally, I tend to default to the position that military history, or the history of wars as it is usually told, is just not for me. But diving into this series has shown me that I can be wrong about that, and that maybe I just haven't been experiencing the right sort of history. The brand new second series of History's Secret Heroes is out now, and it's absolutely full of brilliant episodes that had me gripped from start to finish. In it, we learn how a single woman, Christine Granville, skied into occupied Poland and gathered essential intelligence for the Allies, which changed the course of the war. We also look at how Raymond Gurem used his circus skills to break in and out of a Nazi internment camp to sneak in food and supplies for his family, and how a young Filipino woman named Josefina Guerrero took advantage of her health condition to join the resistance and become one of the most consequential spies of World War II. I'm especially drawn to stories about code-breaking, as I love puzzles, and to me it often feels like the real-life counterpart to solving a mystery. I loved the episode called The Unbreakable Navajo Code, about a group of Native American soldiers who devised a code for the Allies' use, and I also really enjoyed the one about Emily Anderson, an Irish cryptanalyst who worked both at Bletchley Park in the UK and then in Cairo to decrypt vital intelligence. Helena Bonham Carter voices all of these episodes in a way that makes you feel like they're just being whispered directly into your ear by someone who really knows how to tell a dramatic tale to full effect. There are experts interviewed, but also friends, family members and witnesses, so each story feels personal and intimate as well as historically significant. Episodes will be released on Mondays, wherever you get your podcasts. But if you're in the UK, you can listen to the full series now, first on BBC Sounds. In her 1927 novel, Unnatural Death, Dorothy L. Sayers explicitly addresses this notion of the surplus women. In chapter 3, which is entitled A Use for Spinsters, her aristocratic sleuth, Lord Peter Whimsey, invites his Scotland Yard chum Inspector Parker to visit a little flat in Pimlico with him, where there's a woman that Whimsy wants him to meet. Parker, surely a proxy for the 1920s reader here, immediately jumps to the conclusion that this is Whimsy's lower-class mistress, housed at a comfortable distance from the luxury of Piccadilly for his lordship's convenience. Sayers then pulls the rug out from under us by introducing the woman herself, a single middle-aged woman called Miss Clemson who Whimsy is employing as a kind of private inquiry agent. She is my ears and tongue and especially my nose, he declares to his friend. Although Miss Clemson is very smart and sharp, she is also very good at giving the impression that she's merely a gossipy middle-aged lady. As a result, if Whimsy sends her into a delicate situation to ask questions, it doesn't arouse suspicion the way a man doing the same would. More than that, it's expected that she would be nosy. He's taking advantage of the way society looks down on her. It's like she's in permanent disguise. 
For Miss Clemson, being a spinster is a kind of superpower. Whimsy congratulates himself on having found this use for spinsters as stealthy private detectives. The nation should erect a statue to him, he says, with an inscription that reads, To the man who made thousands of superfluous women happy without injury to their modesty or exertion to himself. In subsequent Sayers novels, like Strong Poison, Miss Clemson appears as the head of a bureau of surplus women, who are deployed by Whimsy in roles like secretaries, companions, nurses and governesses, in ways that will help solve his cases. What makes the novels of Dorothy L. Sayers stand out particularly in this regard, I think, is the wide variety of single-woman characters she includes in her plots. They're not just maiden aunts or elderly companions, but academics, nurses, socialites and revolutionaries. Her spinsters are real people, beyond the negative stereotype of a shabby, grumpy old maid. Of course, the most famous mystery-solving spinster is Agatha Christie's Miss Marple. Like Miss Clemson, her status as a single woman means that everyone underestimates her, and confidences are shared with her that would never make their way to a male detective's ears. Here's Camilla Nelson again. I think that what makes Miss Marple stand out is that, you know, she's pink cardigan on the outside, but she's got a mind like a steel trap. And the men in the books around her actually respect her. The policemen defer to her. The policemen can tell that she's a woman who's intelligent, um, who's rational, who's not hysterical, who doesn't imagine things, which makes her an, an interesting sort of, uh, quite, quite a unique character, particularly for that period where more usually um, a spinster character is a prattling character or is a sour or desiccated character. In creating Miss Marple, Christie turned all of the unfavourable assumptions about spinsters on their head. Miss Marple is very nosy and gossipy, and she is deeply interested in the lives of her servants and everyone in her village. But in these novels, that's a good thing. She cares about people and is empathetic. Again and again in the book, she finds the solution to the puzzle where nobody else does because she pays attention to tiny domestic details like the toppings of a trifle or how a curtain was hung. Because she's so involved in the village life of St Mary Mead, there's not much about human nature that she doesn't know. Both Sayers and Christie lived relatively unconventional lives for women of their period. In her 20s, Sayers had affairs with men she didn't marry and even had a child out of wedlock. She later married a divorced man and continued to work full-time as a copywriter and author. Christie got married to her first husband in 1914, but divorced in 1928 after he was unfaithful to her. She later went travelling in the Middle East on her own, eventually marrying an archaeologist who was 14 years younger than her. These experiences made their single women characters more nuanced, Camilla Nelson says. You wonder if the life experience of writers like Christy was divorced or Dorothy Sayers, she married much later in life and, of course, she worked as an advertising copywriter. And you wonder if, if that um, struggle of, of uh, doing a job and living a life and wanting to live a full life um, really comes through in, in that fiction. I, I do think that if Agatha Christie hadn't got divorced, <laughs> that maybe Miss mm. Marple may not have grown the way that she did. We might like to think that today's society is free of prejudice towards single women, but it isn't quite that simple. 
what's interesting about some of these characters is that um, when they've been adapted to television recently, um, Miss Marple, ITV, gave her a romantic backstory, which I, I think was, was ludicrous um, because it sort of ruined the character. But it's almost like the way we think about story and plots um, seems to involve the way you round out a female character um, seems to be that, that you marry them or you make them unhappy in love. We might not talk about surplus women anymore, but society still struggles sometimes with viewing single women as whole beings, independent and self-sufficient. Single friends of mine who have travelled in more remote parts of the world have told me that sometimes it's easier to wear a fake wedding ring than it is to face endless questions about their lack of a husband. Female celebrities are still asked about their lack of husband and children in a way that men rarely are. Unmarried women are still bombarded with questions by relatives and colleagues about when they're going to settle down. Perhaps there are still spinster sleuths among us, even now. This episode of She Done It was written and narrated by me, Caroline Crampton. You can find out more about the podcast and everything it covers at shedoneitshow.com, where there are also transcripts of every episode. She Done It is edited by Ewan McAleese. Production assistance from Leandra Griffith. Member support for the She Done It book club from Connor McLaughlin. Thanks for listening. I'll be back soon with a new episode. Next time on She Done It. Crippin. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.